Good morning to you all. So if you are new here, my name is Tony Hunt, and we are in the midst of a series that is studying the life of a man named Daniel, who was an Israelite that was taken captive and taken into the city and region and kingdom of Babylon and made to serve several kings there. So initially it was King Nebuchadnezzar, and then it was Nebuchadnezzar's son Belshazzar, and then after Belshazzar was Darius, and then ultimately Cyrus to the end. What was interesting is that this slave named Daniel was able to have audience with all four kings and influence all four kings, even ultimately the policies and practices of those four different kingdoms. And, and in that, what we can learn from is that Daniel didn't do anything to promote himself within those opportunities. In fact, he kept choosing over and over and over his relationship with God and being faithful to God first. And that created a striking uh, difference compared to anybody else around him. And as a result, people took notice and wanted to understand his life. And, and with Daniel, he kept pointing back to the worship of God. It wasn't about him. It was something that God was doing in him. And so there's much to learn in the midst of, of this study for our own lives because quite frankly, in our culture, uh, it's becoming increasingly different from the past where maybe there was more of a religious uh, Christian ethos to our country that uh, marks a lot of our federal buildings, uh, but it's becoming a relic, the idea of a Christian faith. And so for many people, they're concerned about the shift of culture here and, and take often this defeated mindset. And honestly, this was predictable uh, from the beginning of time. Man is not getting increasingly more righteous. That has never been the case. Man has always been in, in, a, in a growing, especially culture, a growing depraved state. And as a result, the opportunity, and hear me when I say this, the opportunity for a person whose life has been changed by Jesus Christ, the opportunity to shine the light of Christ is greater than ever. And if you believe that, it will change your attitude and will give you opportunities to influence those around you that, that need to hear about the good news of Jesus Christ. So that's why we're studying some old guy in the Old Testament. And uh, so if you've never met Daniel, some of the people that are in this room might have lived during that time. Um, and so you can ask them. Uh, I'm not saying who, but my friend Greg might know. But anyway... Anyway, so we'll go there. So let's turn to the book of Daniel at this time. If you do not have a Bible with you, we do provide Bibles for those who maybe didn't bring one. Or if you do not own one, this Bible can be a gift uh, to you. But you can simply borrow it for this morning if you wish. And we'll be on page 826 in those Bibles. So today, we're looking at something that Daniel did not do uh, that is profound in other words, he did not take on every battle that was presented to him. And we have to look at why. Why did Daniel fight some battles uh, in regards to what was going on around him? And other battles he strangely left undone. He didn't even take them up. So let me just see if I can provoke something here with you. Let's see if I can get into a tense moment with those of you here in this this room. 
And uh, brace yourself, all right? Quid pro quo. <laughs> Many of you probably had no idea what that phrase even meant until a few weeks ago. But, but if you hear that in, in everyday conversation in your workplace, what is the ensuing discussion? How about just simply the matter of the wall? Now, when I was growing up, when you talked about the wall, you were speaking of Berlin, which we just celebrated the, the coming down of that wall recently. But now that term has a completely different meaning. Or what about what truly constitutes hate speech or bigotry in the discussion, discussing matters of identity and gender and sexuality? What is true hate speech and bigotry? Or is the gun the problem? I'm just going to pause there. <laughs> Depending on certain family members and, and uh, friends, that can be quite the discussion at, at Thanksgiving time, especially with hunting season right on the cusp of Thanksgiving. But when you think about that, you, you hear others will say, you know, get rid of the gun. And others will say, well, can we not find constructive policies that would be wise for society? Now, when I say the things I've just said, many of you have very strong skills to engage that conversation. And you can engage it with a lot of energy and emotion. But what if the questions or statements become like what I'm about to say? Would you have the same level of energy and emotion to engage it? Such as questions, statements like this. I cannot stand being around my family at the holidays. So many of the ones that are older are way too religious for me. You probably hear that and just, oh, I guess where I know where he stands and, and you just let it go. Or how about, I don't get you Christians. All you do is force your views on everyone else. What angle do you take on that? Argue the point that, no, we don't force our views on it. Or do you explore why they feel that way? Or I simply don't get you evangelicals or you Jesus people. What part in that do you engage or at all. I don't, I think Jesus, I'll say this, I think Jesus is just one of many viable paths someone could choose to take that, to find peace. One of great, many great options. There's, there's many good religions out there that can probably bring peace to an individual. Do you have the same energy or emotion that is provoked when someone says that as compared to maybe your political frustrations. Or if someone says, I'm not sure I can make it another day. Would you just hear that phrase and let it go? Or would there be something provoked in you to find out why they feel so hopeless and want to enter into that conversation? Or perhaps the fatalistic response that I often hear as I interact with people who are younger. They say, I don't know if there's hope for me or for future generations. It seems so extreme now. What's it going to be like 50 years from now? 
Or maybe the older person looking back and saying, I don't know how your generations are even going to make it when I look at the way you guys behave as if your generation was so much better. You get my point? In some of these statements, we would probably just sit there or stand there and be like, wow, I can't believe they just said that. But you're likely not to enter into the conversation. Because in many of those statements, there's actually a cry for help. But many Christians aren't provoked to want to find out why they're at where they're at. And maybe perhaps sow the seeds of the gospel in that. But if you bring up something offensive that's politically charged, Christians are known very well for being capable of taking on those conversations. I got a feeling that our message, and it's not just a feeling, I think we can probably prove it, that the message of the gospel is not the known message of the kingdom of God right now. I think our message is known as we're playing a moral battle in the war of words in the media, and we're losing it because we've lost the main thing. The main thing being Jesus is the Savior of the world who can change your life. We stopped making that the main part of our dialogue, and we've started fighting over that which is moral and immoral. And clearly, there are things that are immoral that are being charged as moral today, and it is frustrating and it is offensive. But how in the world can a world ever understand that which is truly moral and live by that morality if they do not have the Holy Spirit within them? And how can they have the Holy Spirit within them if they've never encountered the gospel of Jesus Christ? That Jesus comes to change a person's life and then dwell in him through the Holy Spirit and radically change their perspective of life. If we get these things out of order, then the reality is, is that our message will not be heard. will be cast aside because you're not offering anything different than what the world offers on its own. So let's look at what Daniel did because Daniel was coming from a culture of Israel and Judah that had the story of God in their hands, understanding that God created the heavens and the earth and he did so with an opportunity to create mankind in his image and so that he could have a relationship with mankind and that, and that, that relationship was whole and complete until sin entered the world. And then when that sin entered the world, it separated the relationship between man and God. And yet God was not daunted by this and immediately begins to speak that he has a plan to reconcile man back to himself. And there would be a Messiah that would come and would change the whole dynamic of that relationship between man and God and, and would, would reconcile once and for all that which had been broken. That story was with the Israelite. They understood it. But the Babylonian may have never heard of the story of Yahweh, the creator of the universe, God himself. They knew many gods, and they knew many gods by many different names. 
But all these gods were often, were, were, all, were all created by mankind and were created with their hands. And, and then they were fixing certain aspects that might be true about the true God. But they were giving different aspects of it and then adding their own into their own self-made gods. So Daniel enters into this culture where people did not understand or know the story of the one true God. He comes in, and the first thing that happens is that he, along with his fellow royal uh, princes, are brought into a room, and they begin to select the ones that are going to go through the training to serve the king. This is where we pick it up in Daniel chapter 1, verses 3 to 8, where it says, Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of Babylonians, and the king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. So then among those who were chosen were, from, were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official then gave them new names to Daniel, the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. Let's stop there. So in this context, he's coming into a complete pagan culture that would identify multiple gods and would not know the one true God. As part of this journey of coming into the king's court, they're being chosen out of a group of royal people. And so Daniel is, is one of the fortunate ones to have been selected. But as part of that, as we've shared in the past, they emasculate you so that you cannot affect the harem of the king. And also, therefore, not be able to create offspring that could overthrow the king. So Daniel is chosen to be a part of that. And not only that, he is then going to be trained in how to speak Babylonian, how to behave Babylonian. And he's even going to be given a Babylonian name along with a Babylonian diet. In this, he's given that name called Belteshazzar. This is battle option number one. So Daniel's coming in. He knows the truth about who God is. He is committed to the truth of God and pursuing the worship of one and one only. And so he's going to have many different potential things and options and choices by which he will have to choose. Do I serve my God or do I become a servant of foreign false gods? His first battle option was the name itself, Bel's prince. Bel is the god of Babylon that it was also known as Marduk, and Bel was known as the god of order and destiny. 
This was seen as the highest of gods among the Babylonian worship, or at least the one that was most prevalent in the Babylonian culture. So for Daniel to receive this name, he is being said, every time that name, Belteshazzar, is said, it's saying to Daniel, you are the prince of Bel. You are a worshiper of Bel. You are the royal line of Bel. You are going to serve Bel. That's what the name would be saying to him. It would be offensive. And so Daniel could have chosen to fight this as he is a worshiper of one true God. But then in this, he's got the conflict is that if I don't fight this, I'm going to have to hear this offensive name multiple times every day. So in looking at option one, if, if, if Daniel's going to fight this, he's basically fighting an offense, all right? Nothing in this would cause a separation between Daniel and God. For him to have that name, it does not create a sin issue for Daniel. It does not create a, a, a defilement for Daniel. It is merely an offense because he doesn't worship Bel. He does not serve Bel. He's not of the royal line of Bel. But yet he's going to be given that name and it's going to be said over and over and over. So do I fight this name that is an offense? Well, before we go to the answer to that, battle option number two, his diet. The diet was going to be that of the king's table itself. And, and, and this food likely was food that would have been given to an idol, sacrificed before an idol, dedicated to an idol. And it certainly didn't follow the description of food that God had said he wanted his royal people, the people of Israel, to eat. So in this option, you'll see that Daniel chooses and resolves not to defile himself uh, with the food of the king. Nothing is said about the name Belteshazzar as to whether what he was going to do or not do in regards to the name. But you quickly see that Daniel resolves, I will not defile myself with the food. So in this, I believe there's, a, there's something going on. In, in battle option number one, you have an offensive name. In battle option number two, you have a potential for defilement. So Daniel chose, in this case, to tolerate the offense, but fight the defilement. So Daniel chose to tolerate the offense and fight the defilement. Now, why? So couple of thoughts. To be offended does not create a separation between you and God. If somebody offends me, that does not break my relationship with God. I may not like the offense, but it certainly does not hinder what's going on between me and him. And I would rather grieve an offense than confess a disobedience. Daniel was not disobeying God in anything 
to have received that name. It was not a name he chose for himself. It was a name he was being called, but it was not him. It was not his heart. It did not reflect him. And so he would rather grieve the offense of hearing that over and over every day than to tolerate disobedience between him and God. You see, defilement, to have participated in the king's food, defilement would have been a sin of choice. He would be choosing, yes, I recognize he's a slave, but he saw it as I would be defiled. In other words, I would be choosing to separate myself from God's blessing. And the offense would not have created such an issue. But this would, if I defile myself, I am disobeying God and I'm sinning. But with the offense, I remain offended. And, offend, and, and the offense often is a result of somebody else's error. So the sin of the name was those who gave him the name, not Daniel himself. Are you tracking the understanding? How often do you and I, so let's connect it back to real life here for a moment. How often do you and I get baited into discussions based on an offense and not by rightness between us and God? We choose to operate and to argue and to fight over that which is offensive rather than letting the relationship between us and God be pure and right and be seen by others around us. So as a result, how often then does the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ, go unheard because Christians too often fight the battle of offense rather than being concerned about one's relationship with God, both you and the hearer. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's easy to get offended. You know, I, I have heard many times when, when people, you know, I, I've shared this analogy when, when, uh, before here, but when I'm on the golf course, and I just show up, and I'm a single, and I get placed with another group of, of people, most of the time men, and, and you get on the course, and you, you, know, it's, you, you do an introduction on the first tee box. I mean, how many of you golf? How many of you are golfers? So you track it with me, first tee box, it's, you get your names, right? Somewhere around the fifth or sixth hole, the conversations have grown enough that they ask you, so what do you do for a living? right? It's just kind of by nature. So it takes probably about 45 minutes to get to the fifth or sixth hole, maybe even an hour. And by that time, everybody's kind of loosening up a little bit. They're getting a little bit more frustrated with the game. So they try to distract from the game. And let's talk about what you do for a living. So they're going around and they're telling me what they do. And then they say, what do you do? And, and, and I would say, well, I'm a pastor. And, and, <laughs> It never fails. They start like, you could see their eyes look, oh no, what have I said? <laughs> what have I done? Do I need to apologize? And, and so, you know, it's just very interesting. And, and, they, and then usually somebody say, oh, I'm really, because next hole, something is said. And they're like, oh, I'm sorry that I said that. I was like, no, no, it's okay. That's, that's your language. But without me, focusing in on the offensive language that they have, 
By the time we're done with the course, those guys have gone the longest they've ever gone without cursing on a golf course. And I've expected nothing of it from them. Just by not choosing to take the battle on of the language, they actually shift and change. I remember working with a group of guys uh, when I was in college that were extremely, extremely uh, perverse with their language. The things they talked about, the things they said was very offensive. And over time, they started realizing my language and my discussions were different from theirs. And so they finally said, are you religious or something? <laughs> and I said, well, yes, I, I'm a follower of Christ. And, and, and you, you just hear the murmuring between all of them like, oh boy, we got one of those. And, and so over time, they would start, because I would engage them and I didn't expect for their behavior to shift because in my mind, I'm thinking, listen, as a believer and follower of Jesus Christ, with the help of God through his Holy Spirit, it is still easy to not let this tongue be just perverse and to say things. You know, it, it's, it requires the help of God. So why would I ever expect somebody who does not know God to live by the standards of God without the help of God? And so I just usually, when they start cursing and saying all those things, I do not ask them to change. If they, if they have other practices, I don't ask them to change. But guess what happens? They change when they discover I do not. And so I find that battles are often won by just simply not projecting upon them, but sticking with what is most important, making sure I'm honoring God with my life. That's what Daniel's doing. He's doing nothing else but saying, I honor one God. I trust in one God. And I will let the offensive things stand where they may. But I will not dishonor God. And so in this context, you'll see that he honors God with all that he does. And he lets the offensive things fall where they may. But with, if it's a choice about his life as to whether he's going to honor God or not, he always honors God. Hence, the name, while offensive, he lets it go. But with his life, he is not going to choose to sin. That needs to be heard in our understanding. So that as a result, he ends up having opportunities to speak into things as time goes on because he does not constantly fight battles of offense. Now, how does Jesus handle this? Because you and I, we're on this side of Jesus's life, this side of the cross. Does Jesus take the same model in the way he lives out his life? And I want us to turn to Mark chapter 12. We're going to go back to Daniel, so keep your finger in Daniel, but, but go to Mark chapter 12. If you have the Bibles we handed out, this will be on page 949. So Mark chapter 12 and verses 13 to 17. Jesus is now fully into his ministry. He has proven himself to be special among mankind because he has healed people. He has done some amazing things with his, his teaching. He's casted out demons. He's shown authority over weather. He's shown authority over spiritual realm. And this is becoming a threat to those who understood God a different way. And so in this context, they are trying to figure out a way for Jesus to trip up, to basically get off of mission, to 
become in a, to go over into a battle that's more physical rather than the spiritual battles Jesus was committed to fighting. So in verse 13 of chapter 12, we see a moment like this. It says, Later they sent, they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. It is, is it right then? So here's the trick. They've, they've made him feel good. We affirm you. You're, you're an amazing man. But here's the trick. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me? He asked. Bring me a denarius, which was a coin, and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, whose image is this? And whose inscription? Caesar's, they said. Then Jesus said to them, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. So he's a threat, but he's been staying on point with his message and his life. His point was he is introducing people to the kingdom of God, that he wanted them to understand that God is ushering in a new kingdom where he will reconcile every man, every woman, every child who would believe and have faith upon him, reconcile them back to God. It's the gospel, the good news, that even though we have sinned, we fall short, and none of us could ever earn rightness with God, Jesus was going to make the difference. But he knew that if he responds to this, these questions in the wrong manner, his ministry from that point on would be about a fight between him and Rome and not a fight between mankind and God. And that's where Jesus was wanting to insert. You see, in the two questions are this. The first question is, is it right to pay this imperial tax for the Israelites? Are, 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 is it right for them to have to pay this? So it's a question of substance. Is this tax fair? Now let me explain the imperial tax. The imperial tax was a tax that only conquered peoples had to pay. It was not a tax that Roman citizens had to pay. Roman citizens had to pay a tax. But those who were conquered peoples had to pay that tax plus the imperial tax. So then, now you understand the question. Is it fair for us Israelites, us Jewish people, to pay this extra tax when Roman citizens do not. The, inherent, the, the, the unspoken thing here is the tax was offensive, and it was a burden, and it was unfair. And yes, it was probably a very evil and cruel tax upon the people. So if Jesus agrees to what he knows it is to be, that this is an unfair tax. But if he speaks it, even though it's an offensive tax, it's offensive, it's harsh, it's harming people. If he agrees to it, he knows that from here on, his battle is with Rome and not with the enemy of our souls. 
And he would end up dying on a cross because of creating a rebellion towards Rome, not dying on a cross because he had a message about the good news that he was offering for the kingdom. Do you see how in this moment, it's an important moment. Do I stay on mission or do I let it be co-opted by that which is offensive? Jesus does not answer the question. He ignores the question, is it a fair or right tax? Does not answer it at all. But then he does answer the second question, should we pay it? And he says yes. He says yes, you should pay the tax. And he does so cleverly. Look at the coin that you would pay with this tax. It has Caesar's face on it. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. But when it comes to what is God's, give to God. Jesus ultimately stays on mission. He does not let it be sidetracked to where the rest of his days is about escaping Rome. But rather, Rome was impacted by Jesus because he never defiled or, or confronted Rome. He always confronted sin. So therefore, it equalized his message for both the Roman citizen and for the Jew. You all fall short of God's standard. All of you. And all of you need my saving work that is about to happen. So Jesus avoided the offensive discussion about the tax and stayed on mission that it's about the good news of Jesus Christ. Let's go back to Daniel, if you will, for, for conclusion to this message. So while Daniel did not choose to argue the offense, what Daniel did do was continue to worship God. And I'm sure that every time he heard, hey, Belteshazzar, there was a part of him that would just grieve. But he would respond and go about his work in a way that would honor the true God that he served. Daniel did this so well. I want us to take notice of something that happens in Daniel chapter 5. So if you could turn just a few pages to your right, in Daniel chapter 5, King Nebuchadnezzar is now dead. King Nebuchadnezzar's son, Belshazzar, is now the king. And when there's a transition of kings, even from father to son, the son establishes an entire new leadership structure around him. So Daniel's probably just simply cast aside. But something strange happens in the, the palace room uh, that the king was sitting in where a finger writes a message on the wall. Nobody can read it. And he's asking for his chosen leader for the, the court of wise men. And he's like, he has no answers. And he doesn't also offer up Daniel, who had been proven as one that could answer such difficult things. But the queen who is married to Belshazzar, does remember Daniel. So let's look at what she says in verse 11. Saying that um, there is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. Your father, King Nebuchadnezzar, appointed him chief of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. 
He did this because Daniel, whom the king called Belteshazzar, was found to have a keen mind and knowledge and understanding and also ability to interpret dreams and explain riddles and solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel and he will tell you what the writing means. Okay, we now have over 60 years have gone by since Daniel received his name Balthasar. You see throughout the first several chapters, his name is Daniel, also called Balthasar. And you see Nebuchadnezzar referring to him as Balthasar. What's Daniel's name now? It's Daniel. The queen knows him as Daniel, who King Nebuchadnezzar also called Belteshazzar. And she says to her husband, call for Daniel. So somewhere in the journey of this, in all those years, Daniel, who was renamed Belteshazzar, prince of Bel, worshiper of Bel, Daniel becomes Daniel again because... He doesn't worship Bell. He doesn't serve Bell. He's certainly not the prince of Bell. And people knew it. It seems that they all realize that this is the worst naming that a king has ever done for a follower. It does not fit Daniel. He does not worship him. His reputation of worshiping Yahweh and Yahweh alone was stronger than a name that the king gave him. So he became known as Daniel, which means God is my judge. It's very interesting. He never fought the offense of his name. He received the offense, dealt with the offense by simply continuing to worship God. And if he falls out of favor with the king for worshiping God, then God is his judge. Guess which name matters more? And which lines up with him better? It's Daniel. And Daniel gets his name back because she says in this, it's like, this is the person that was in charge. She starts with his name, Daniel, and then says, oh, by the way, your father called him Belteshazzar. But then she says, call for Daniel. Which means that not only did Daniel get his name back, but everybody around him, his enemies and his friends called him Daniel. God is my judge. And yet he never fought for the name. He just lived up to his name. It's very interesting. Daniel chapter 6, verse 13. You have the situation where another king is now in play. You have Darius and his enemies are bringing an accusation against Daniel. And in verse 13, they say, this, very, very interesting. They say, they, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, your majesty, or to the decree you put in writing. He still prays three times a day to his God. So his enemies call him Daniel. So even in this situation that you have 
Daniel being given an offensive name. He does not fight for it, but he does fight for being right before God, making sure that he's right with God and living that out that eventually over time, he loses the offensive name because you cannot keep saying he's Bell's prince when he has nothing to do with Bell. And in verses 19 to 20, you'll see that after the lion's den moment, Darius keeps referring to him as Daniel. Only one more time in the book of Daniel is the name Belteshazzar even mentioned. And it's found in Daniel chapter 10 verse 1. And in that it says, Daniel, who was called Belteshazzar. And then it goes on to say other things. When you look at what is said at the beginning of Daniel, before Daniel chapter 5, it says, Daniel also called Belteshazzar. Do you understand that you're hearing the English difference there? For the first part of his life, when he was still known by the king's name, he would say, Daniel, who was also called Belteshazzar. But now that as time has gone on, he used to be called Belteshazzar. He's just Daniel. So I say to you, are we letting the most important things that are in our lives being lost because we allow ourselves to get caught into arguments of offense? Are we letting the offensive things in culture dictate our responses at the cost of people ever hearing from our lips there is a God that can change your life. So here's the takeaways that I look at this. Is that if we do as Daniel did and as Jesus did, then we would know that the most important thing about our lives is to keep the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel itself, as the main thing in your life, not only in your life, but also before others. We should not let any other message of our life ever trump that message. Number two, we should not let the offense derail the message of the gospel, not only in our life, but also in our words. And number three, we need to let God fight the battles of our offense. Let God take care of the offensive things. You know, going back to that whole language thing, because that's often the, the divider line, the initial divider line between myself and another individual. I remember one person saying to me, he's like, I am really sorry. I curse so much around you. Forgive me. And, and uh, I, I, I'm sorry that I'm offending you. I said, honestly, it's not offending me. I said, the only thing that offends me is when you say Jesus' name the way you do. Oh, I can change that. Okay. <laughs> you know, and, and that was, and it was an opportunity, and it was in a point where I had a relationship that was far enough along that I could mention what actually offends me. But too often, we start with the offense. And I beckon you to consider this. Can a person ever live to the standard of living like Jesus if they do not have the spirit of Jesus in them? Then why do we project upon them that expectation? And we spend so much time arguing over an offense. God calls us 
to not only worship him and worship him alone and have a relationship with him through his son, Jesus Christ, but we're to be the light of the world. The light of Jesus is to be seen in us and we're to be a light to the world so that the world can receive it. So that the world can receive it and see that they need Jesus. So let's let the light of Jesus Christ and what he's doing to change our lives be what is seen not for the world to know all the things that we're offended by, which quite frankly, I have a long list. But what's the point if they don't know Jesus? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for changing our lives. For those of us who know you, thank you for taking us out of that damned state where we fall short and we're left with nothing but guilt, shame, and hopelessness. Thank you that you tore off all that was hindering us and separating us from you. God, reveal yourself in power now to those who may not have ever known you, that the very thing that could answer the questions of their life and bring hope into their life is the name of Jesus Christ and what he has done on the cross for them. And then, Lord, Take away the veil that it's a work of grace, that they would not have to earn this, but merely you've already done it for them. And then for those of us who know the name of Jesus, forgive us when we've cared more about the offense than we could care about the person hearing the gospel. So God, work in us, convict us, help us to be more confident and excited to speak into the other, other people's lives in a manner that will bring them hope and a different future. I pray this in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Philippians 2 says this, who being in the very nature of God, Jesus Christ did not consider equality with God something that he had to grasp or to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross." Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him a name that is above every other name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and glory to the Father God. Amen? Amen. That's the name we proclaim and that is the gospel. That's what should be seen and heard from us more than any offense that we might carry. So if you came into this room not having a relationship with Jesus, I hope that you'll pursue him this morning. We'll have people underneath the cross uh, here after the service. We'll be glad to talk with you concerning that. But if you have a burden of any kind, we would love to pray with you. We have people that, again, they will be there to pray or to share. Uh, I'll be up front. We just want to make sure you know Jesus. That's the most important thing out of this whole morning is to know this name, Jesus, but to know him as the person that he is, that is the savior of the world, a name and a person that has been exalted above any other because of what he's done to the glory of God. 
So having said that, we release you not under an offense, but rather as a charge that God has empowered us with the great news of the gospel. Let that be what's upon your life and your lips. Amen. You are dismissed.